Hi, I'm Louisa Burwood-Taylor, and this is AgFunder, a podcast about the entrepreneurs revolutionizing the food and agriculture industry and the investors behind them. Today, I'm really excited to be speaking to Matt Barnard, who's the CEO of Plenty, which is a vertical farming group on the west coast of the US. And if you're in the agri-food tech space, you will have had to be living under a rock not to have heard about the record-breaking $200 million investment that Japan's SoftBank made into Plenty over the summer. It was actually the first time that Plenty really came out of stealth to tell the world who they were and what they were up to. So I speak to Matt today to find out a little bit more about the last few years and, and how they've been building the company. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Great to speak to you today. Hey, Louisa. Yeah, thanks. So, Matt, we first met a couple of years ago at the Indoor AgCon in New York, back when you were called C. Jane Farm. And I didn't really know much about you, having other... I've seen your name on a few investor presentations, yeah. um, but you were sort of seriously in stealth. Um, I don't know what serious, <laughs> I don't know what the difference between being in stealth is and seriously being in stealth. But anyway, you were, you were seriously in, st- in stealth. And, and we did talk about doing an interview at some point, but um, the timing sort of was never right. And then the next thing happens and you've raised the largest ever farm tech funding round right. <laughs> with your $200 million Series B with SoftBank. Um, <laughs> so that was quite the entrance into the public domain. Um, so maybe you could start by kind of telling us, you know, why was it important for you to be in stealth until that point? Well, I mean, I don't know that it was important for us to be in stealth so much as it was to make sure that we didn't take up airtime when we weren't yet ready with something to talk about. So what we try to do is we try to, uh, to be ahead of the story, if you will, a bit uh, and try not to talk about ourselves too much because uh, no one likes to sit in a room uh, with someone who talks about themselves. <laughs> right. And I think um, there are quite <laughs> a few companies in, in ag tech and indoor ag actually that you know, do speak very early about sort of plans and things. So, so you're saying that your idea was that you wanted to have something of substance to talk about before you sort of told everyone who you were. Right. And we also, at that point in time, Though we were growing amazing produce and, and getting it into the lives of a lot of people here in Silicon Valley, we weren't really ready to capitalize on anything that would come from talking about ourselves. So we didn't want to give the impression to people that we, could, uh, that we were ready to execute on something that we weren't really ready for. So we just decided to wait. And then what was with the name change from C. Jane Farm to Plenty? Well, we are a company that has global ambitions, we see a lot of problems and a lot of demand to serve around the world. And as we thought about having a name that was appropriate for a global multicultural company, we wanted to make sure that, uh, that we did that. And so when, when you step outside of the U.S. borders, people haven't seen those breeding primers that were popular in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and a little bit in the 80s here in the United States that involved Dick and Jane and Spot the Dog and Puff the Cat. And <laughs> right. so, they, so they didn't know that we were referring to a, a simpler time with better food uh, that was more nutritious. And so what, what, what we decided to move to the name Plenty 
which was better able to communicate to uh, to cultures around the world and uh, and, and set us up uh, more for success that way. Fair enough. Um, now, before we talk about the business, I just want to talk a little bit um, about your background. So you've been, uh, okay. LinkedIn tells me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you've been a private equity and debt investor and you've built at least one business. Is that right? How would you sort of uh, sum up your resume? Yeah, I've built several. Uh, a big portion of my career was in the wireless telecommunications industry. So I was in that industry for about a decade and, and helped to build and ultimately ran a company that uh, engineered, designed, and deployed the networks for the world's uh, largest telecommunications companies. Uh, so Verizon, AT&T, SiriusXM, Comcast, Rogers uh, in Canada, uh, we, we designed their networks, we engineered them, we deployed them. Uh, they relied on us to make their networks better quality and uh, you know, to cover ever more space, if you will, add capacity, add quality, add coverage. And uh, so I spent 10 years doing that and you know, helping to build amazing teams of people that were the top in the industry. Uh, and then after that, I, I was in the private equity industry for a bit, mainly looking for ways to invest in water technology because a driving passion of mine is to help to fix the water industry, uh, the water system, rather. Where's that passion come from? Well, uh, th- there are few things essential in life. I don't know if there's anything more essential than water. Uh, you know, we need, we need water, we need energy, we need food, we need, uh, we need caring human relationships. Like, uh, that's, that's about it. And, uh, and so the water system is severely stressed, and it is one where due to some societal choices a century or two ago, uh, we, we hide the cost of acquiring cleaning and delivering water to people. So the the cost isn't associated with the price or the price isn't associated with the cost. And therefore we're kind of over consuming. And so we have this, I liken it to a battery that's draining uh, where, you know, if you have a remote control car or any device powered by a battery, the battery is draining in the background. You don't necessarily know how fast it's draining and how low it is because the car is still performing exactly as you would expect it to. And then ultimately, at some point, it crosses a threshold and it stops performing. And our, our water battery, the battery of our water system, is severely drained. And, and we are in danger of crossing that threshold with the largest aquifer in North America slated to be dry in a couple decades. In Louisa, it takes 1,000 years to replenish that aquifer. It's, it's under the Great Plains states, which are responsible for much of our cereal production. Uh, so Texas, Oklahoma, Colorado, Nebraska, Kansas... It covers a massive area. There are now entire areas of Nebraska who can no longer access uh, the Ogallala Aquifer to feed their wheat fields. So, you know, we have, uh, we have some sirens going off, and uh, I am motivated to help to fix I mean, it. That, yeah, those are terrifying stats, but not statistics that everyone necessarily knows, you know, in the U.S. or, or globally. Was there any particular reason that you kind of delved into looking at that? Did you have any personal experience with water shortages? Or Well, I, you know, I started looking at, um, at, at what was happening in water system around the world, in part because of my interest, because I grew up on a farm in Wisconsin, and uh, I was aware of what had happened on that farm going back generations. 
when people knew less about how their actions affected the quality and quantity of the water supply. And so I was, I was already a bit aware of it. I started to look into it as, uh, you know, in my early 20s. And, uh, and then as I read more and more about it, um, you know, first in publications like The Economist and then, you know, in, in grabbing books about it, uh, whether the Cadillac Desert or there are now many uh, books and documentaries on it, um, you know, understanding more and more of what, what's happening around yeah. the world. So I guess that sort of segues nicely into how and why. That was my next question was, you know, why indoor ag, bearing in mind your previous experience, but I presume that that, that passion for solving the water, water crisis um, played a role there. Yes, and, and so, uh, you know, af- after I spent that time looking for, for ways to, you know, help alleviate stress in the water system. I then went back into large-scale technology systems uh, around resources. So I, I, I was brought in to help scale a, uh, a company that did a cellular smart grid. So these are large uh, technology systems to help electric water and gas utilities damp down and spread demand. Uh, and, um, and then after that is when I, uh, I worked to, to found Plenty, uh, because it it it, um, it is a way for me to you know pursue my desire to help fix the water system. Uh, I when I growing up on that farm in in Wisconsin, I became keenly aware of the fact that I loved the food that we grew on our farm, and I did not enjoy the food that we grew, that we bought at the grocery store, particularly fresh produce. So uh, loved loved fresh produce in the farm and not uh, the stuff we bought at the store. And in fact, in Wisconsin, there are a lot of crops you can't grow. And for the crops we couldn't grow on the farm, I didn't even understand why people liked them. Uh, couldn't couldn't figure it out. So uh, it wasn't until I moved to California that I that I learned that um, a couple thousand miles and a week in a truck has a way of uh, of destroying uh, what is otherwise uh, some amazing perishable produce. So that, and then I've had a couple uh, you know health incidents in my life. Uh, in the life of my family that has caused me to, to, to really delve deep into how what we eat affects how healthy we are and, it, you know, increases or decreases our risk for, for various terminal disease. And, and so all of those things together, my experience of food on the farm, my desire to, to, to help fix the stresses of the water system and family experiences that caused me to, uh, to dive into what, what we know about our diet and how it affects our health are, are all what, what led me here to plenty. So fast forwarding to today or to this year and, and the big $200 million round that you raised with SoftBank and others, can you maybe, you know, tell me a bit about how, you know, what drew SoftBank to you compared to other indoor ag groups? How do you think you um, differentiate yourselves? Because, you know, I mean, at this point, a lot of the focus is around growing leafy greens. Um, I know that I think you guys are growing cucumbers and strawberries too. Um, but what do you think kind of make, what's the plenty difference that um, has, you know, enabled you to attract these big investors with these global ambitions? Well, there are a lot of large global investors uh, around the world, um, many of whom are now invested in plenty, that have been looking for ways to invest in this industry for a number of years. And uh, so they had been looking at, hey, you know, what are the economics of this business? What does it take, take to succeed? What does the team need to look like if we want to build uh, a global brand? And, uh, you know, they, they saw in us the foundation of a technology system that could grow amazing food uh, that fits into 
the, the budgets of people around the world. They saw, you know, a great balanced team across a lot of areas of domain expertise and, uh, you know, are just very excited by um, the vision of being able to solve for what, what they knew to be the secular trends that got them interested in the industry in the first place. So they were already aware that, that you know, agricultural capacity is declining both absolutely and on a, and on a per person basis around the world. They knew that, uh, you know, 4% of the world's population is consuming roughly 30% of the fruits and vegetables of the world, uh, which means that, you know, roughly 96% of the world's population is, is, uh, does not have access to fruits and vegetables in the way that they would like. So, um, so they were aware of all of those secular trends, uh, you know, persistently rising labor and land costs. So they were, they were looking to, to find ways to solve for it. So, um, uh, so that's, th- those were some of the things that got us to, to this place. But it, but it seems to me that, you know, the big challenge ahead for, for indoor agriculture is, is scaling and is your business model. And, you know, as I mentioned, you know, leafy green seems to be the main area of focus, and that's not going to provide the nutritional needs of the world. Um, so, you know, can you talk a bit about how you're going to scale into other food products that can answer those urgent issues that you've mentioned? Because at this point, it still seems like it's a lot of potential. And when, when is the reality that you're going to be getting this nutritional food into the hands of those people globally? Yes. Well, so we have a lot of work to do. <laughs> so, so building building both a business and farms around the world uh, does take a little bit of time. So we, we are, we are working on it quickly. Uh, but I think people at the, at the end of the day, uh, you know, as they look back three, five, 10 years from now, they're going to be stunned at the rate at which, um, uh, you know, more and more people around the world have access to fresh fruits and vegetables and, and, and a nutrient rich diet in a way that they do not in 2017. So, you know, we, we, we are developing multiple farms, um, we have literally, you know, dozens of farms in different stages of development in different parts of the world right now. Uh, several of those will be uh, will open in 2018, and then uh, the rest are slated for 2019 and beyond. So we're going to be working to, um, uh, you know, to get, to get these farms out so that we can get foods in the homes and hands and mouths of people around the world as quickly as possible. Just thinking about, um, you mentioned, you know, obviously the technology piece was something that was very appealing to to your investors and, and potentially a differentiator um, for you. Um, you're building some exciting stuff inside your vertical farms. I think I read somewhere that you have tiny seeding robots. Is that right? And is that technology that you're actually developing in-house or you're working with other people on that? So we do, um, we do seed uh, in an automated way. Uh, that that is technology that uh, well we've uh, we have applied uh, kind of a wrapper that adapts it to what we do. Uh, that is that the core of that is technology that was developed outside of Plenty, um, uh, but we are doing some very groundbreaking work in robotics uh, to, to 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 help get more food in the homes of more people. Uh, so, uh, but but not not in seeding. It's in other parts of the of the farming process. And how important is um, robotics and automation for indoor agriculture? Is it is it about you know a labour issue? I know it's it can be tough to find people to work in indoor farms that have the right expertise. 
or is it about you know the precision the precision aspect of it and avoiding any yeah this this isn't actually an indoor agriculture problem it's it's a it's a challenge for all of agriculture so as we look around the world what we see is we see a global fruit and vegetable market of about 500 billion dollars but we think that if, if these crops were to be available to, to 7.3 billion people around the world, you know, this, this would be a $2.5 trillion or $3 trillion industry. So we believe this to be an industry with a tremendous amount of suppressed demand. So we view our job as getting more fresh, fresh fruits and vegetables into more people's budgets, and automation is key to that because uh, we, we actually have a better ability to do it inside than outside. It's just much harder to, to, to make those process automated when you're outside. Right. And that automation, I presume, is, is pretty essential for the business models to work. I mean, it sounds to me like there are some indoor farming groups that have really struggled with that, with that cost component. And, and that relates not just to labor, but also to um, electricity costs for lighting and so on. So making the business models work that automation is pretty essential. Is that right? That is, yeah, that's right. Just, just, just like uh, growing these crops outside, it's essential to, to drive labor costs out. And just as labor costs cause California strawberry industry out in the field to lose about 15% of its acreage last year because of labor costs, um, we deal with the same thing. So, uh, so, so we are working to find ways to get, uh, to get more of this uh, into, into people's homes. And then another challenge that, um, that we see, and I actually asked our CIO, Michael Dean, um, what he thought. And he said that, you know, he'd learned that fresh produce supply is very relationship driven with many relationships developed over decades and strong distribution networks in many markets between the producer and the retailer adds, you know, another level of complexity and a cost base for what is, you know, a low-cost, high-volume product for many of these crops. So how do you plan to um, get over those challenges? Because if you have, you know, global plans to be in, in various different markets, it's obviously going to be very different in each place that you go. That's right. Uh, it, it is. Grow, growing a global business is very, very difficult. And uh, we're, we're very uh, aware of that. It's one of the reasons why we raised the financing we did so that we could build the team necessary to, to do it. Uh, you know, there's, in, in order to feed the, you know, the people of Japan and the people of China and the people of Saudi Arabia and the people of the UK and of Ireland and Canada, in addition to all of the people of the United States that we're working to, to serve, uh, you're right, it absolutely requires a large team to be able to, uh, to get this food out to as many people as possible. So um, it's uh, one of the things that drove us to, um, to put that financing together. Thinking about the, the source of your funding. So obviously the latest round you had um, SoftBank and you had some big um, sort of asset management firms. And just thinking about the, the VC, the venture capital investors from your earlier rounds, I'm wondering if you're raising, you know, $200 million at Series B, perhaps the Series C is going to be even bigger. How, how are those original VCs going to... Um, to keep up with some of those larger, you know, more mature investors. Um, and then, um, and yeah, kind well, of my, well, yeah. And then my question kind of feeds into, you know, how suitable is VC money for indoor agriculture, which is pretty infrastructural, you know, in its nature. Sure. So, so the, the answer to that question could, could stretch an hour, but I'm going to try to condense it into, uh, <laughs> right. uh, into something that's shorter. Uh, because no one wants to listen to me talk for an hour. 
so first of all, relative to our earlier stage investors and keeping up, they, they don't necessarily expect to. They, they know that uh, when a business that they invest in succeeds, that ultimately it's going to move past them, and, and, and really they want it to because what they know is that their capital is some of the most expensive investment funds on, on the earth. So for a company to keep using that uh, means that really the company isn't succeeding. So you, you, the companies need to graduate out of that type of capital at some point in time. Uh, so that's, that's one. And then with respect to is venture capital appropriate, it really just depends on the stage of the business. So uh, you know, we expect in a few years to no longer be, uh, you know, accessing that type of capital either. Uh, you know, as, as you look at how infrastructure is built out around the world, once it is, it is mature and proven over the course of years, people tend to use debt to finance the building of infrastructure and the financing of businesses, just like field farmers raise a lot of financing from year to year uh, from their banks uh, in the form of debt. Plenty plans to do the same to finance it, the, the build-out of its global uh, finance network, or excuse me, global farm network. So it, it all just depends on the size of the business, the stage of the business, and what's the most appropriate uh, capital at each given point of the business. So it's, that answer changes over time. And if we're successful, we absolutely won't be uh, accessing venture capital at some point in the future. And what is your kind of ultimate route? You know, what is the potential exit for your investors? Yeah, we're, we're focused not so much on that as we are in, in getting people the most amazing food that they have ever had, the best produce they've ever had, produce that's better than ice cream, produce that's better than chocolate, uh, strawberries that are so amazing that people eat them before they get home from the grocery store and have to go back for a second trip. Uh, you know, so we're focused on, on that, getting, um, getting the people of the world more nutrient-rich food, fresh fruits and vegetables, and, and being able to live happier, healthier, longer lives. So we're working to build, uh, to delight customers in that way as we work to build uh, an amazing brand around lifestyle, health, food, and sustainability. Uh, and uh, everything else will follow from that. So the focus is on building a standalone business at this point. That's right. Thinking about looking ahead to next year, what can you tell us about what plans you have on the horizon? I mean, you mentioned that you have various different locations in development. The only ones we know about are obviously are in California and then and in Seattle. But what can you tell us? Are they going to be some based in globally in Japan, perhaps? So uh, you will see us around the globe. Uh, we, we are not cr- quite ready to talk about the specific markets that we're launching in. I'm going to be excited to talk to you, too, about that very soon for a few of them. But we're not, um, we're not releasing those yet. We, we do that in a very coordinated way. A farm launch for us is almost like a product launch. And so we coordinate that with everyone involved in our launch. It ends up involving other companies and partners. So, um, uh, so we will be letting you know. And there will be more farms in 2018. Uh, and then in, and will you be opening, we will be an international company very soon. Yeah, that's great. And will you be opening up the farms? You know, I mean, kind of giving us a, a sense more about what technologies you're building and using in-house, or is that always going to be something that's a little bit secretive? You'll find us not talking a lot about it in the next year or so, but as the years pass, we're, we're going uh, to talk more and more about it. We're actually looking at building, uh, looking at some ways where we can uh, bring the public in and show them how it is that we grow uh, this food that's so amazing that they can't, they can't wait to have more of it. So, um, but what's fun, what's fun about working here at Plenty is just that we have all of these different areas of of domain expertise where we have people that are deep experts in 
computer science and machine learning and, and plant science and farm operations and mechanical engineering. And it's, it's, uh, it's quite an exciting place to work just because of the richness of, of, of our team. Yeah. I mean, it just seems to me that, you know, you're going to have a lot of these um, indoor groups all building several things, systems from scratch, when there's probably a lot of knowledge out there that could be shared for the benefit of the industry overall. I'm just wondering when that kind of point will be, that it will be a bit more sort of democratized, some of this. Yeah, we, we actually are already working on a plan to do this. I don't expect it's going to be in 2018, but I do expect it's going to be sooner than people think. Fabulous. And so what is your favorite fruit and vegetable? <laughs> Just to finish well, off. Out of, out, out of a plenty farm, I, I have to say, uh, you know, kale, our kale is stunning. I mean, uh, one of my favorite quotes, and I've heard it in multiple ways because everybody has their own way of saying it. So people have our kale and they say, gosh, you shouldn't even call it kale because all I know is that I hate kale, but I love this. It's, it's totally different. There's, and there's a little bit of sweetness to balance it out, too. So it, has a, it just has a much more balanced taste, and it's not tough and chewy. It's velvety and soft. So, uh, so that's, that's a pretty exciting crop for me because we can make that super nutritious food. The food Instead of the food that you should eat, it's the food that you can't wait to eat. Uh, so we, ha we have kale. I love our strawberries. People are just going to be addicted to our strawberries. Uh, they're going to have a hard time getting home from the grocery store without eating them all. I can't wait to try them. So when will I be able to have my first taste? <laughs> well, so uh, you could come out to San Francisco and, 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 and try them now, uh, try the kale. Uh, we could probably arrange a tasting for you in, out of our Wyoming farm on the strawberries here in the next few months. And, uh, and then Seattle, Seattle uh, you'll be able to try uh, you know, some of these crops in uh, Q2 of 2018. So, uh, so it's, um, it's happening soon. That's great. Great to hear. Well, thank you so much for your time. I'm so glad we got to speak at last. Yes, I am too. Yeah, th thanks, uh, Louisa, for spending the time. I've enjoyed it. You've been listening to AgFunder. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts to hear new episodes coming out every two weeks. And if you liked it, please leave a rating and a review as this helps the show get found so we can keep having conversations that change the way the world sees agriculture. For more news on food, agriculture, startups and investors, go to agfundernews.com and you can also follow us on Twitter at agfunder. I'm Louisa Boa-Taylor. Thank you so much for listening.